0: but we're continuing our study of the book of Romans today we're in the second half of Romans chapter 6 and uh one of the things that you'll notice as we look at this half of Romans chapter 6 is that it speaks about something obvious and when i when i say obvious i'm saying something that becomes uh particularly visible something that becomes noticeable. Something that if you are observing one person or another person's observing you, they would notice this about your life if it's true. And what we're talking about that's so obvious is the most obvious mark of a true believer. The most obvious mark of a true believer. So even before we dig into that, what do you suppose that is? Think about that for just a moment in in your mind. What's the most obvious mark of a true believer? Well, we're going to see what is said for us here in Romans chapter 6. So if you would, take your Bibles and turn with me. We're picking up today at verse 15. And um, this is what it says. At verse 15, I'm going to read down to verse 23. It says, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves... But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank you for the privilege that it is to be able to read it together today and to meditate on the things that, that you include in it and the things that you want us to understand about who you are and how you operate in our lives. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd help us as we seek to grow in our walk with you. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us as we seek to be people who apply the truth of your word to our day-to-day context. And we pray, Lord, that when people observe our lives, when people hear the things that we say and See the things that that we do that it would become very obvious that we are followers of yours, that we're part of your family, that you've made us part of your kingdom. So Lord, as we wrestle with that thought and as we look at what it looks like to uh, make our faith in you obvious, we pray, Lord, that you'd help us to understand these things in a meaningful way. And we thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a a quick poll of the room. Um, How many of you have either volunteered or worked with uh, summer camping ministry at some point over the course of your life? All right, so a good percentage of the room. I actually think it it looks from that uh, highly scientific survey, it looks like it's more than half of this room. So you'll understand what I'm about to share next here as we kind of think about this subject as we're looking at it here. But I'll tell you, one of the most consequential experiences I've ever had during the course of my life was the privilege that I was given to direct a Christian camping and conference center for five years. I didn't anticipate that I was going to be doing it. It wasn't necessarily something that I had planned to do. But during a season of desperation, that ministry offered me the opportunity to direct it. Now, I had been involved there, and some of you had been involved in some of the same ministry, so you're highly familiar with what I'm referring to but I had been involved there as a child, I had been involved there as a teenager, and then in college, and I continued to work there on the staff. Then once I became a pastor, I volunteered to teach there during the summers, then I served on the board, and then it got to a spot where the camp desperately needed new leadership, but yet they were at a spot where they couldn't afford to hire somebody to lead it. It was getting very close to closing, and so the board asked me if while I was pastoring a church up in that region if I would also consider directing the camp, if I would be willing to do both. And I agreed to do it, and it was exhausting. But I'll tell you, there were many things that I enjoyed about that job, uh, even though it was probably the most difficult job I've ever had in my life, and that's the honest truth. Uh, I enjoyed working with the various churches. I enjoyed working with the various ministries. Uh, I enjoyed working to repair and to improve the property. All of those things were enjoyable. But my favorite part of working with that camp was the privilege that I had to work with our staff. I loved working with the staff. Each year I had the responsibility to put together a staff that was usually about 30 people. And that group of 30 people would help out with the summer camping ministry. They'd also help out with the retreat ministry, the midweek conferences and other special events. That was the group of people that I pulled from. And every year I had the privilege to put together a team of about 30. And they, likewise, would say it was quite exhausting, but we enjoyed serving together. And one of the things that became very clear to me about my role as director and my relationship with that staff was this, that if I spent time making sure that I hired the right people and then gave them the right training and then showed them that I appreciated the work that they were doing, they seemed to thrive in their roles. And in time, it also started to become very clear to me that I could trust that group with some very important things. Keep in mind, many of those staff members were in high school and they were being entrusted with working different pieces of machinery up there or overseeing people that were younger than them or implementing policies on on, in regard to the camp. I remember at one point I had to run down to the hardware store. Wouldn't you know it, as soon as I ran down to the hardware store, the health inspector showed up to inspect the kitchen. And I was like, of course, I almost think they like, wait, you know, they must have like a GPS on your vehicle. They're like, all right, he's off the property. Now we inspect. And you know who toured that health inspector around a 15 year old member of my staff who worked with me side by side, he toured the, and I remember at one point he's like, the health inspector kind of looked at me and was like, how old are you? Like, you're not running this place, are you right? First, it was 15 years old. But one of the things that I appreciated about working with that group of people was that it got to the point where I knew I could completely trust them. And they were obedient to do the things that they had been trained to do, even if they weren't being observed. I knew that I could step off the property and they would still do what they were supposed to do. I knew that at night I could go to bed, and even though they were in a season of life where you think, oh yeah, of course they're going to like try and sneak out of their cabins or they're going to do that, they didn't do it. And we had a great working relationship for those that, those years, and I still look back at it and still maintain friendships with those people because a high level of trust was developed between us. And I bring that up, and that came to my mind even this week as we were looking at this, because when you look at how God operates in your life and in my life, there's something that He desires from us. I mean, I know that when I was serving in that context, I was appreciative of the commitment and the faithfulness and the obedience that I saw from the staff and doesn't the Lord expect that sort of thing from us as we partner with Him in what He's doing in this world? When we come to a place of genuine trust in Jesus Christ, a transformation takes place within our lives. Instead of running away from God, what ends up happening is we learn to embrace God. You know, instead of ignoring God, we strive to hear Him. Instead of disobeying Him, we delight in obeying Him, and this obedience becomes the most obvious mark of our genuine faith in Him. It makes it very clear where our allegiance lies. makes it very clear that we genuinely know Him and have a relationship with Him, because we're putting into practice the very things that He said, live this out. And He also tells us, I'll give you the strength to live this out. And so as we trust in Him, we joyfully obey Him. But that's where I want to start this morning by asking the question, do I trust the Lord enough to obey Him? Do I trust Him enough to obey Him? Look again at the first two verses from what we just read a few moments ago. Verses 15 and 16. Let me reread them. They say this, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Let's pause there for just a moment. The church at Rome. So, you know, even as we kind of look at um, uh, our, our church family gathered together here this morning, there's a lot of different backgrounds represented in this room. People are from different parts of the country. Some of you are from different parts of the world different ethnicities, all sorts of things represented in a collected group like ours this morning. And when you look at the church at Rome, the church at Rome was made up of people from very different backgrounds. There were some believers in that church who had grown up Gentiles. So they had grown up just following the Gentile customs. They weren't particularly believers in God, many of them as they were growing up. They probably worshipped the Roman deities and things of that nature. And then they came to faith in Christ and they worshiped Christ. And there were also a group of people in that church who had grown up Jewish. They had a Jewish background. And uh, and so you had this mixture of people from very different customs and very different backgrounds now living together as brothers and sisters in Christ, but you still kind of remember your backgrounds, don't you? And the customs and the things that you ate and the things that you practiced and the traditions that you followed would have been all different for these people growing up. But now they're part of one body, they're part of the church, and they're meeting together as the church in Rome. And you have the Apostle Paul in this letter to the church at Rome explaining the grace of God. And as he's doing that, he explains the nature of the grace of God. And he points out that in Christ, we are no longer under the Mosaic Law of the Old Testament. And I imagine that that would have sounded very strange to the Jewish believers gathered together in the context of the church at Rome. And I'm sure some of them wondered if maybe the Apostle Paul was actually saying to them that that basically, since we're no longer under the law of the Old Covenant, since that's not what's governing us any longer, maybe we could just kind of do whatever we want. You know, may, they're like, is, is, is Paul giving us permission to just uh, to just have license to do anything that we want because we are no longer under the Old Testament law. And Paul anticipates that that might be a question that some would ask in that context. So he clarifies what he's saying in this portion of Romans chapter 6. Paul explains here in this portion of Scripture that living under grace does not mean that we are to indulge in sin. That's not the point of grace at all. When God showed us His grace, He set us free from sin's bondage. Not so we could misinterpret His grace as a license to sin. And so Paul stresses in this passage that we become slaves to whatever we obey. And that's that was true then, and it's true now. I'm a slave to whatever I obey. You're a slave to whatever you obey. And we can live like we're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or we can live in obedience to God, which is the fruit of righteousness and leads to even more righteousness. But immediately, when you look at the things that are being spoken of here, and when you look at the word obedience, I don't imagine that the word obedience rises to a very exciting level in the minds of most people. right? When you get up in the morning, are you like, you know, today is a day that I'm just looking forward to being obedient? You know, do you just like... Hype yourself up with that in the morning, like, obedience, today's the day, obedience. You know, typically when we think of the word obedience, we tend to think of small children or pets, right? That's where we tend to, like, when I think of the word obedience, immediately a puppy comes to my mind, right? And it's like, be obedient, be obedient. And yet, this is the type of word that's being spoken of in regard to followers of Christ. But yet it's not the type of word that we immediately become excited about. But the truth is, obedience is actually evidence of trust. Think about that for a second. Obedience is actually evidence of trust. It proves that trust is genuine. It proves that trust is real. For example, a lot of times on uh, Sunday afternoons following worship, uh, when we're able to do so, we like to invite people from our church family here to come over and have lunch. And typically, if you, you know, particularly if you've never been to our house before, one of the first questions you're gonna ask if you come over for lunch with us is, where do you live? Right? Where do you live? Now, I, I could do that, we could do that one of two ways. Most of us have a smartphone in our pocket that's got GPS. So I could give you the address and you could punch that in and just meet me over there. And most people tend to do that now. Although there's some people that like to do things old school and say, "Can you give me directions?" I'm like, "Oh, don't you, have, don't you have why are you making it so hard? Forget it. Lunch invitation rescinded. You are not if you're going to make it so difficult. You go down this street you go, I don't know the names of streets anymore. I have a phone in my pocket. It just tells me go this way and go this way. Um, but if I tell you my address and you show up, um it must mean that you probably told you I was, believed that I was telling you the right thing. You must have trusted me if you showed up at my house and followed that. Or if I give you directions that are specific. Go down to this road, turn right, take a left at the first left, go on to Maple Avenue, follow Maple Avenue all the way down. If you go to CVS, you've gotten too far. If I give you directions like that and you follow them and trust them, or if you follow them and get there, that means that you've trusted that I was telling you the truth. That means you've trusted uh, what I was saying. And in the same way, when we speak about obedience to the Lord, obedience to the Lord is actually evidence that we trust Him. When He's giving us direction, when He's giving us instruction, when, he, when He's giving us counsel through His Word, and we look at that counsel, and instead of trying to figure out a way to not have to implement it, we look at it and we say, all right, this is something that I needed to hear, and this is something that I need to put in practice we actually live it out, what are we showing? We're showing that, what we be- that we believe that what He says is true. And we believe what He says is true because we understand the nature of His character. That it's impossible for God to lie. And He always tells us the truth. And it's clear evidence that we trust the Lord when we obey Him, when we listen to Him. So if we've trusted in the Lord... Would we try to stifle our consciences when He's speaking to us by the power of His Holy Spirit? If we trust in the Lord, would we choose the values of our culture or the era in which we live in over the clear counsel of His Word? Now, admittedly, the lusts of the flesh the lusts of our eyes, the boastful pride of life, these are things that look wonderful at first. And that's how Scripture describes sin. You know, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. These are things that all tempt every single one of us. And those are things that look wonderful to us at first. But behind the scenes, what's actually happening with those things? They're conspiring against us to produce death, disease, and depression. So the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, they they always look good initially, and they tempt us. And if we were to categorize our temptations, I believe they would fall into those three categories. But behind the scenes, what Scripture reveals to us, even in a portion of Scripture like this that we're looking at today, those things are actually conspiring against us to produce death, disease, and depression in your life or my life or in anyone's life, who gives in to any one of those things. It's fascinating what Jesus says in Matthew 6.24, and I want to read it to us. But in Matthew 6.24, Jesus said, No one can serve two masters, for either, either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. No one can serve two masters. Now apply that to what Paul is talking about. In this portion of Scripture, isn't Paul speaking of the same thing? Saying you can't have two, you're a slave to whatever you obey. And you can't have two masters. You're either going to hate the one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. So if sin is still my master, that shows that there's a part of me that may in fact still despise Christ. Or that in fact I may be devoted to the sin. That I've welcomed into my life instead of being devoted to Christ who's freed me from sin. But don't you, can't you identify with that statement that Christ makes in Matthew chapter 6? This idea that no one can serve two masters. I think we can identify with that on many levels. Is it possible, hear me as I ask this, is it possible that one of the reasons that you right now may be struggling to experience the kind of joy that the, the Lord wants you to have during this season of your life is because you're trying to serve two masters? Is it possible that the reason that you're not experiencing the joy that the Lord wants you to have is because you're trying to serve two? Two masters at the same time. Meaning, have you made yourself the slave to something that's actually working against you instead of living in the joyful experience of trusting that Jesus is all you truly need? Do we trust the Lord enough to obey Him? I think that's what Paul's getting at in these opening verses of the section that we're looking at today. Do we trust the Lord enough to obey Him? Are we actually convinced that Christ can satisfy the deepest longings of our souls? Or are we still trying to find something else which in effect says, Maybe there's a part of me that despises Christ. Well, I certainly don't want that to be the case. But that's what we wrestle with, isn't it? As human beings, this is what we wrestle with. This is the, the dilemma of humanity. Now there's something else that we see here in, uh, in Romans 6, verses 17 and 19. Another question that I think is worth asking related to this. But when we're talking about obedience, what motivates our obedience? Is our obedience motivated by love and holiness, or is it motivated by something else? Look at verse 17, and let me reread a couple verses after that as well. It says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Let's pause there for just a moment. So during the course of most weeks, and I guess probably most people would know this, but during the course of most weeks, when you look at my schedule, one of the things that is often kind of a big part of my weekly schedule is meeting together with either families or individuals for pastoral counseling. It's something that I consider a pretty important ministry of our church. And over the course of the years that I've had the privilege to do this, so I've been pastoring a little over 20 years now, I've learned something in that process. It's funny, people come to the pastor for counseling and then the Lord uses counseling to teach the pastor something that he didn't know before. And one of the things that I've learned through that experience that I really honestly wish I understood much earlier was this. And let me illustrate it by by saying this. When someone presents a problem as a concern, it's easy to start addressing those concerns from a behavioral standpoint. So, you know, if someone's struggling with overeating, it's easy to give the advice of saying, hey, just stop buying potato chips. Don't stock your your pantry with potato chips, and then when those hunger cravings come, you won't overeat. Voila. Counseled. Boom. Right? Does it work that way? Or how about this? Pastor, I'm struggling with a porn addiction. No problem. All you need to do is just put a filter on your internet. Boom. Counseled. Have a great day. Right? Or, pastor, it's Christmas time. I'm I'm, I'm really struggling with overspending. And this tends to be something that I do over the course of my life. No problem. Just have your spouse hide the credit cards. Boom. Counsel. Right? And for a long time, I kind of treated counseling like that. Almost like it was a behavior thing. And um, the Lord started making something clear to me about that. Those are band-aids. Those are temporary fixes that really don't fully fix what the issue is. They're all surface solutions, right? That might sound somewhat practical and certainly can have an application. I'm not saying any of those options are bad in and of themselves. They definitely have an application. But what's what's the limit of that kind of advice? It only goes so far because it never actually dealt with heart motivation. And until you get to heart motivation, you're not really going to get to the solution of what the problem is. Now, if we really want to address what's going on in our lives, if we really want to address the things that we're struggling with, we need to get beyond the surface and we need to start digging into what motivates our heart. Behavior always follows belief. Think about that. That's a universally true statement. Behavior always follows belief. We often keep struggling with the same issues in our life over and over and over again because we never get to the heart of our struggles. We never address our false beliefs. And that's the type of thing that the Apostle Paul, under the Holy Spirit's inspiration, is trying to address in this portion of Scripture. He's trying to get to the heart of this matter. You know, He says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. What does it mean to become obedient from the heart? You know, I appreciate the fact that the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to write this down this way, right? You're speaking about being obedient from the heart instead of being slaves of sin. So, what actually might be behind something like a food addiction, or a porn addiction, or a spending addiction? These addictions, and many others. They thrive in hearts that are being governed by the false belief that food or porn or spending is going to soothe our pain and going to fill our emptiness and is going to make us happy. But food and porn and spending and whatever else you want to put in that list, it can't do that for you. It can't fill the void. It can't... can't Make where you have been feeling pain become permanently healed. It's not going to produce joy. In fact, it's going to produce shame. It's going to produce regret. It's going to produce, you know, feelings of just being disgraced. Those are false saviors that produce a false sense of salvation. Well, what's the solution? Well, the solution is always Christ. And that's not meant to be said in a trivial type way because Christ soothes the longing of our soul. He actually can heal your pain. He can fill your voids. He can give you joy that is not dependent on circumstances. He will set you free from whatever form of sin slavery you've currently been leaning on to try and heal your hurting heart as you experience the kind of freedom that only Christ can supply, you'll start to notice something about your motivations. Your motivations start changing as well. Meaning, as a recipient of His grace, as a recipient of His mercy, as a recipient of His love, you'll find yourself desiring to be obedient to His leading. And you'll obey Him because you've learned to love Him too. He showed you love when you felt like you were unlovable. He accepted you when you felt like you were unaccepted. He filled the void that nothing else successfully filled. And He showed you love in that entire process. And when your heart becomes convinced of the love of Christ in a very real way, not just in a way that you say, yeah, I think that's a thing, but when you know that it's real and when you can testify to the fact that the love of Christ has been directly applied to your life, this idea of obedience to the Lord, it finds its motivation in love. Not just a sense of duty, not a sense of obligation, but love. Because He's taught you to love Him too by showing you what love looked like in the first place. You'll obey Him because you're experiencing the transformation of heart that the Holy Spirit is facilitating you as He produces holiness in your life. That's what the Apostle Paul's talking about when he's speaking about sanctification here. It's this process that the Lord's bringing you and I through as we trust in Jesus Christ where He's producing holiness in your life more and more and more the longer you walk with Him. And the Lord delights to do that. It's the fruit of genuine trust. Now, I can do my best... To try and preach that message to you over and over and over again. And if you've ever noticed a theme to every message I preach, I hope that you'd notice that the theme is Christ. There's no portion of Scripture that is not trying to point our hearts to Christ. The whole thing's trying to point you and I to Jesus. The whole thing. And I could do my best to preach that message to you, and I can reiterate that and try and be creative with all the examples that I can think to give or any of the Scriptures that I want to point to. I can do my best, but here's the thing. No one will have the opportunity to preach to your heart as much as you do. I might get 45 minutes a week, but you get the rest of it. No one's going to have more opportunity to preach to your heart than you will. And if you've been preaching a message to your heart, that's based on the teaching of some kind of false belief. The false belief that this sort of thing is going to bring me satisfaction, or this sort of thing is going to bring me peace, or this thing is going to heal my broken heart, or I need maybe this relationship to fill a void in my life, or whatever you're, you're trying to preach to your heart that's, that's the fruit of a false belief. I would pray that you would please consider replacing that false message with the joyful truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is the source of true joy. And in Him, we also experience the benefit of our shame being taken away. He takes it away. So as we wrap this up this morning, let me ask this. One final question. Do we understand what Jesus has done with our shame? Do we understand what He's done with it? Look again at verse 20 down to the end of the chapter. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't that a beautiful portion of Scripture? I don't watch a ton of TV, but I do watch some. And my family would tell you, they'd easily be able to list uh, the things that I like to watch on TV. And sometimes I'm the only one that would like to watch them. <laughs> so... Um, that's fine. But one of the things that I really enjoy watching are things that are biographical in nature. I love watching historical biographies. I love watching things. I actually just watched a, um, a documentary on the Amish. Right? Now, I'm certain that no one else in my house, maybe my wife, she probably would have high-fived me and we could have watched that together. But I watched it alone because I dare not suggest to my family, let's watch a documentary on the Amish. But I'll tell you what, it was fascinating. It was great. It's still available for free if you have Amazon Prime, so go check it out. Um, I really liked it. It was very fascinating. And I watched another one recently. I won't use this man's name on purpose, because what I'm about to say about him isn't flattering. And even though he's a public figure... I still, I guess I'll just, I'm going to hold off on using his name. But I was watching the biography of a prominent uh, modern day businessman. And during this season of his life, people study this guy. They admire him. There are all sorts of people that want to be like him. And when you look at the course of his life, I found it fascinating because during the course of his childhood, he, he experienced a considerable amount of disappointment. It was like disappointment after disappointment after disappointment. Lots of transition, lots of change, lots of people letting him down. He didn't grow up knowing his father. He was repeatedly beaten by a rotating cast of men that his mother would bring home. He lived in poverty. He was nearly expelled from school because of his defensive and defiant attitude. And when you look at the context of what was going on in his life, who could blame him? You know, I imagine it'd be rather difficult for him to trust adults when it seemed like every adult in his life at that point had been letting him down. And now, he's known as a ruthless businessman. Like, people look at him and they're like, this guy is ruthless. Almost like he has no conscience. He's got a very high net worth. My understanding is that recently he became a billionaire over the past uh, several years. I think it was over the past five or six years, he became a billionaire now. So he went from millionaire to billionaire, high net worth, and I can't help but wonder, so this is like the counseling hat that ends up going on when I'm analyzing this man's life story, but I can't help but wonder if one of the major reasons he's so ruthless in his business practices is because he still feels the shame from his childhood that he experienced back then. And I think he's probably trying to do everything he can to make his life as completely different in some respects. As he felt like his life was back then, and he's probably trying to distance himself from what he experienced back then while also protecting himself from ever returning back to it. Now, now that he's hit a, you know, billionaire status, I doubt that he's headed back to poverty. I guess it's possible. It's probably not likely. But you still see this pattern happening in his life, and I really think it comes back to the shame he experienced growing up and trying to distance himself from it. And if you compete against him, well, you're an, you're now a threat to this new life he's tried to carve out for himself. And so without conscience, he's going to attack you and he's going to try and destroy your business and he's going to try and be the guy on top. And for decades, that's what he's done and he's succeeded. But I really think it comes back to that childhood shame. And I think there's a part of his brain that still goes back to those moments even though he's a very much a senior man at this point. Now... Think of your own life for just a second. We all have a background. We all have experiences. We've all had things that we've gone through or things that we had no control over that were cast upon us. I think it's true of every one of us in this room, even if on the surface we look like maybe we're shined up and, and uh, we've got our act together. But I think every single one of us probably has something or many somethings in our past that we're probably not proud of. Things that can still produce a sense of shame. And Paul asks the readers of this letter, so let's ask ourselves as we're the readers today, he asks the readers of this letter to identify what kind of fruit was produced by the sins of our past. What kind of fruit was produced by those things? What kind of legacy has come from the things that we're now ashamed of? I think in the end, when we look at what Scripture tells us here, the long-term fruit of our rebellion against the Lord is what? It's death. The long-term fruit of rebellion against God is death. Sin ends no other way. That's how it ends. But the fruit of righteousness... Isn't it nice that the story doesn't end there? Wouldn't that be a very sad ending? Sadly, for some people, the story does end there. But for us in the hearing of this portion of Scripture, that doesn't need to be the way our story ends. Because the Scripture tells us the fruit of the righteousness of Christ, which is being poured into the lives of all who trust in Him, is holiness and eternal life. That's the fruit of the righteousness of Christ. It's being poured into your life if you trust in Jesus Christ. Because what did Jesus do with our shame? Scripture reveals to us that Jesus took our shame upon Himself so that He could offer us His righteousness in its place. When Christ was on this earth, He was mocked. You know, read through the Gospels at some point. Look at what people did to Christ then. Look at what people do or say about Christ even now, right? Some of it hasn't changed very much. But during the course of His earthly ministry, He was mocked. He was beaten. He was spit upon. I don't know if you've ever been spit upon. Do you ever have somebody do that to you? I actually have. I have, at one, one season of my life, I had somebody spit on me. That is a very unpleasant thing to experience. But he was spit upon. He, was, he had his beard ripped out of his face. He was crucified. Well, how was he crucified? I've seen lots of paintings of Jesus when he was crucified. They always seem to have a polite loincloth on. No, the soldiers cast lots for his clothing. They stripped him naked. He was crucified naked. It was meant to be a torturous and embarrassing event for Christ. Why did he endure it? And he knew ahead of time that he was going to. Why did he endure it? Well, part of what he was doing was he was taking the full brunt of our shame on himself. Innocent, yet dying a criminal's death. Without shame yet taking our shame upon Himself. It was the shame of our sin that was being placed upon Him because He had done nothing to deserve that. And yet, for the joy that was set before Him of seeing millions, if not billions of people clothed in His righteousness, He was willing to endure that shame. I love what we're told the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, let me read this for us. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting Him, He endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now He is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. That's what Christ was doing with our shame. He was taking it upon Himself, but He wasn't intimidated by it. Now, I don't like feelings of shame. I don't like when I feel shame. And there's been plenty of times in my life where I've felt that emotion, and you probably have as well. Moments where I've either embarrassed myself or sinned against the Lord or whatever it may be, and I'm sure you can testify to those moments too. But again, what has Christ done with our shame? He took it upon Himself so He could offer us His righteousness in its place. In Christ, we have a new identity. We are holy and blameless in His sight. In Christ, we have a new destiny. We are destined to live forever in His presence. In Christ, we are blessed with the gift of new life. The wages or what we earned from our practice of sin. It resulted in physical and spiritual death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what this portion of Scripture is telling us today that the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord, for anyone who will trust in Him. Jesus makes us new, and the most obvious mark of a true believer is joyful obedience to Him. Do we trust Him enough to obey Him? And is our obedience motivated by love and holiness? And do we fully appreciate what Christ has done with our guilt and shame. As we wrap up, as we just think about the depth of the love of God, I want to read one more portion of Scripture for us, and it's from First John chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, and it says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank You for the privilege that it is to be able to read it together and to meditate on the things that You've communicated as we look at this portion of Scripture. And Lord, we recognize that it's very easy for us to go in our own direction. When it comes to this idea of being obedient, in many respects, our primary allegiance, at least this is what's been displayed in in many seasons of our lives, our allegiance has been to ourselves, where we've obeyed ourselves over you, or we've obeyed our desires or the lusts of our flesh over you. And Lord, your word tells us we're slaves to whatever we're obeying. And You also tell us directly that we can't serve two masters. And so, Lord, we're wrestling with that as we look at a portion of Scripture like this today. But, Lord, we're grateful for what You've done on our behalf. We're grateful for the fact that You've taken our sin upon Yourself. And we're grateful for the fact that You've given us new life through faith in You. So, Lord, we pray that we would live that new life and that it would become extremely obvious to those that we interact with, but also to ourselves, that our trust in You is genuine because we're living it out. Lord, use our lives as a visible testimony of the genuine faith we have in Your Son, Jesus Christ. And We're grateful, Lord, for the love that You've shown us. We know that You've prompted love back from us because You initiated it in the first place. We know that You empower us to walk with You. We know, Lord, that You've given us Your strength and that You're present with us today. You're not somewhere off at a distance. You're right here in our midst, and so we're grateful for that. So Lord, thank You for these reminders from Your Word today, and we pray that in every context of life that You place us in, that we would be joyfully obedient to You, knowing all that You've done on our behalf. We praise You for this all in Jesus' name. Amen.